So thank you, for everybody, for being here this morning on this, on this beautiful day. We have a lot to do, so we're going to jump right in this morning. We're in this teaching series called Broken People, Unbreakable Grace. And last time we talked about Joshua. We spent a couple times talking about Joshua. And in the, the narrative of the Old Testament, we're at the point now where um, Joshua is, they've conquered almost all of the promised land. And he is, um, he's actually, he's getting ready to die. And he's reminding everybody of the covenant that God made with their forefather, Abraham. And of all the grace and goodness that God has for them if they would walk in, in this covenant. <clears throat> and he encourages them to choose wisely. And so that's where we pick up the story. We're in the book of Judges, and things, um, things are not going to go well, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We're just going to jump right into the text. There's a really nice summary of the entire book of Judges in chapter 2. It's like, we're gonna, I'm going to break it up and talk through it a little bit, um, but it's chapter 2, verses 10 through 23, somewhere in that ballpark. But it starts like this. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Ares, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. A whole generation grew up not knowing the Lord. That means there are two critical things, right? No one was talking about God. No one was teaching God. Therefore, because there was nobody there to connect the dots, right? God makes himself known all around us that this younger generation, both chronologically and spiritually, was growing up, and they didn't know God. They didn't know him in a head knowledge, and they didn't know him in a heart knowledge. And I want to read to you um, a little bit about what they should have been being taught. This is a pretty famous text from Deuteronomy chapter 6, but it's the crux of everything for them and for us. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you. This is Moses talking. To teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your ancestors promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. The instructions were pretty clear. God was to have these central priority role in their lives. Their conversations, as they went about their days, God was supposed to be in every part of it. There's not supposed to be a divide between sacred, sacred and secular, and they were supposed to bring their children up knowing and, and loving the Lord. So here's um, the lack of teaching. This is, what it, this is what it leads to. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. So we talked about a good bit about the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the, um, the morally corrupt worship practices that evolved around those, around those false gods. And the people of Israel, they got to the promised land and 
they left God and they started following these other gods. They hadn't completely wiped out the people that were in Canaan. So there were still these pockets of Canaanite worship that were happening. And it was like the Israelites were distracted. They see bright, shiny little things, and they're like, ooh, let's go. And they would go, and they would pursue those, those things. Um, there's another phrase that gets repeated. This phrase, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And there's another phrase that gets repeated throughout the book of Judges. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did as they saw fit. It's amazing. Thousands of years later, we're still making the same mistakes, right? We're still making the same mistakes. What we think that we know better than what Jesus has for us. We think that he's somehow holding on us, that holding out on us, there's something better. <clears throat> so God is good to his word. He, um, he tells us who he is. He tells us what he wants to give us, but he also warns us of the consequences of not following in his steps. And this is, this is what it says. This is still in Judges chapter two. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around them, who, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. So the people chased after other gods. They wanted what the people who were following the other gods had. God let them have it. It's a scary thing, right, that God will turn us over to our own choices. It's a really scary thing. <clears throat> this is where we start to turn the corner a little bit. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. So the judges, this is what this whole book is about, are these people who were leading Israel at the time. We're going to, again, go back into the book of Deuteronomy and give you a kind of a, a little more in-depth look about who these leaders were and what their, what their roles were. Yet they would not listen to... Oh, sorry. Um, that's not starting in the right place. Then the Lord's... Thank, thank you, Joe. Did you do that? <laughs> then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from their ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. All right, so sorry about that. That was some, uh, some, some of Deuteronomy in there and some of, some of judges that I'm having a hard time following the scripture in my notes. That first part was judges, right? He raised up judges. The judges were to save the people from their own choices. They were God-appointed officials, leaders. They would settle disputes. They would also lead the people into battle. Now, Deuteronomy and what the actual more in-depth of the, what the um, judges were. If cases come before your courts that are too difficult for you to judge, whether bloodshed, lawsuits, or assaults, take them to the place the Lord your God will choose. So throughout Israel, there were local tribunals, groups of elders who would make decisions and help people kind of when they got stuck. Go to the Levitical priests and to the judge who was in office at that time. Inquire of them, and they will give you a verdict. The judges worked alongside the priests. 
You must act according to the decisions they give you at the place the Lord will choose. Be careful to do everything they instruct you to do. Act according to whatever they teach you and the decisions they give you. Do not turn aside from what they tell you to the right or to the left. All right, so here's the, here's the pattern of the book of Judges. Big word, apostasy. It basically means that people turn away from what they know to be right. They turned away from the standards of covenant living, and they did their own thing. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord gave them over to their choices, and they were oppressed by foreign, by the, by the Canaanite kings and everybody around them. They would cry out to God in their distress. They would realize that they had it much better under God, and he would he would relent, and he would come to their aid, and he would graciously deliver them, and it was through the judges that he, that he delivered them. <clears throat> this book, the book of Judges, and as we'll see next time in the book of Kings, and really almost all the characters that we've been looking at throughout the Old Testament, and even some of the inanimate, inanimate objects like the ark um, are are four prefigures, foreshadows of Jesus as the ultimate judge, the ultimate leader, the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate protector, and the eternal one. We're going to look at a specific judge today named Deborah, who was a good judge. However, she was human, which means she wasn't flawless, and she wasn't eternal. And the pattern for the people of Israel was, as long as there was a judge in place, they were okay, as long as they had a leader to follow. But when that judge passed away, they went nuts, they lost their minds, and then went off and did their own thing again. So we have Jesus, this, these precursors pointing to Jesus, Jesus, the promised Messiah, the one, the one that will come. And that's the big overarching idea that we, that we can rest in, right? We have the perfect, ultimate judge. Perfectly just, perfectly loving, perfectly kind, perfectly merciful. And each one of these characters, in some way, they show a little bit of the Christ who is to come that we can, that we can look forward to. We're going to look specifically, like I said, at the story of Deborah. Within the book of Judges, covers roughly 350 years. There's 12 judges. Six of them are referred to as major, six of them minor. It's not because of the impact that they had. It's simply the amount of text that they get. The major ones get more, more press, more pub in the book of Judges. Deborah is the fourth judge, and she's unique in several ways. First and foremost, um, I think all of the judges after her screw up in a major way at some point. At least they don't, they don't end well. She is, she's a good judge. She does really well. Um, not only is she a judge, but she's also a prophetess. Right? If we remember back to Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit was not given to everybody. The Holy Spirit was given to appointed people at specific times for specific reasons so that God could communicate to the community at large through that person. And Deborah happened to be a prophetess. And she is the only female judge. So she's unique in a lot of different ways. Now, this, this text is not, um, is not a text about gender roles, but I will, I will say this about because there, Deborah and another woman named JL play massive roles in this, um, in saving the people of Israel. There were people who will look at this text and say that the only reason that Deborah was a judge is because there was not a male fit for the role. And nowhere in the text does it say that. That's something that's being read 
into the text. The only thing that the text says, chapter 2, verse 16, is that the Lord raised up judges to save them. He raised up Deborah to save his people. All right, we tracking? All right, so this is kind of story time now. Judges 4 and 5 is the story of Deborah and how she saved the Israelite community. Chapter 4 is the version in prose. Chapter 5 is, is a song that Deborah wrote with a guy named Barak, or Barak, depending on how you want to pronounce it, um, about the victory that they were about to bring. And chapter 5 is really, it's one of the oldest texts that we think we have. Like, it was written not long after this battle took place. The, the language is archaic, and it's a really different form of, of Hebrew, which makes scholars think that this is a really, really old piece of writing. It's beautiful. There's a lot of imagery in it. So we, we kind of read two of them together. And the story that I'm going to relate to you is the information that you can glean from putting both of the accounts together, the historical and the, and the poetic. So Judge Ehud dies. As the people do, they lose their mind, they do their own thing, and God gives them over to their choices, which means they are oppressed by a foreign king. They're oppressed by King Jabin and his military commander, this guy named Sisera. And these guys run roughshod over the Israelite people. The people are scared. They won't travel major highways for fear of being you know, bullied and picked on by the, by the Canaanite armed forces. And this goes on for 20 years. The people cry out. They ask God, like, God, we screwed up. Please help us. Please help us. He raises up Deborah to save them. Deborah is doing her thing. It says she's sitting under the palm tree of Deborah. She's holding court. She's making decisions. She receives word from the Lord that she's to call on a man named Barak, and he is to lead the Israelites against Sisera, and the Lord is going to deliver the victory to them. She calls Barak, and she tells him this. And to Barak's ears, this is crazy talk. Israel does not have a standing army. Jabin and, and Sisera have a professional standing army. These are professional soldiers. So the Israelite army would be a bunch of guerrillas that they would round up. God wants them to round up 10,000 troops. He tells them where they're supposed to go to Mount Tabor, and they're supposed to hang out and wait. What's important about the location, the mountain, right? They can hide in the forest in the mountain. Comes down into a plain that's wide open. The thing about the Canaanite army is that they, they had the highest level of technology of the armed forces of the day. They had the chariot. And this wide open plain was a perfect place for these chariots to maneuver around. Next to the plain was the river Kishon. So <clears throat> Barak is, is like, this is, this is nuts. We're going to play right, right into their hands. I'm reading a little bit into the text. He doesn't say it. He's thinking this is nuts. But what he does say is he says to Deborah, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not going to go unless you go with me. And Deborah immediately says, okay, I'll go. However, because you did not take God at his word, you're not going to be the hero of the day. God is going to deliver. He's going to secure the victory through a woman. So they, they get set up. They go to Mount Tabor. Deborah gets word from the Lord. It's time for the attack. She gives Barak the order, and they Go down, they come down out of the mountains onto the plain and they start heading towards the army. 900 chariots is what the text tells us. 900 chariots. And 
it says that the Lord routed the Canaanite troops before them. Same language that was used of what happened to the Egyptians when the Hebrews were crossing the Red Sea. The Lord threw them into confusion. He routed them. And at the same time, a, a rainstorm came, and it flooded the Kishon River, and the open plain that was perfect for chariots turned into a quagmire, and all the chariots ground to a halt. The Canaanite troops panicked. They jumped out of their chariot, chariots, and they started to run away, including their leader, Sisera. So the Israelite troops gave chase. They pursued them down, and they, they're doing battle with them. Sisera goes looking for cover. He knows that there's a family in the area who has struck up an alliance with the Canaanite king, and he, he basically shows up on the tent, and he's like, I need some cover. And this woman, Jael, says, come on in, come on in. And she takes him in, and she recognizes what's happening. Right? She recognizes the commander of the opposing forces is running away. The battle must be going poorly for them. She not only takes him in, but she gives him, he asks for water. She gives him warm milk. She gives him a blanket. And she, I'm sure she knows what she's doing, right? Warm milk and a blanket. This guy's going to be out cold in about 30 seconds after engaging in a battle. So he lays down, and he's asleep. And like I said, she knew what was going on. Victory in those days was not secure until the commander of the opposing army was dealt with. She picks up a tent peg, and she puts it through his temple, sticks him to the ground. The victory is secure. A little bit later, Barak shows up. She's, look, here's the commander of the opposing army. The battle is won. They finish. They take out the rest of the Canaanite forces. Barak and Deborah collaborate on a song. They celebrate God's victory. They celebrate the heroes of the day. They make fun of the losers. If you read it carefully towards the end, it's really like, I don't know, it's like a modern-day rap beef. They're like making fun of the, of the Canaanites and, and how they lost. Um, and then the Israelite people, 40 years of peace because of what had, what had happened. So there's the story, right? How Deborah saved the Israelite people. Let's, let's get into this by, by thinking about the different figures, characters in these accounts and what they did and how, how they acted. The first one, right? Our, the title of our series, Broken People. The people of Israel did their own thing. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's the first thing that they did. They suffered under the oppression of foreign kings. And when they had had enough, they cried out to God for help. This is one of the most important things that we can get our mind around, right? As we look at this story that's thousands of years old, thousands of years old, and we think about the idea of sin, of doing our own thing, of thinking that we know that we know better than God, right? Sin is terrible, and it breaks God's heart. However, it is not what defines us. God's love is still there. God's love is what defines us. There are, <clears throat> um, 
for, for a while, I got really into a handful of teachers who, um, who were really emphatic about understanding how horrible sin is and, and how, how its devastating effects. But it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't feel like it was a message from God and that like, I don't want this for you. I have better for you. This, there's, there's so much more I have for you. It was, you suck, you're terrible, you're a sinner, and that's all you'll ever be. And maybe I was like some of my own stuff mixed up in that, right? But so that's not, sin is, is like catastrophic, no question about that, and we have to get our brains around it. But at the same time, God loves you and he loves me. He had to be with us, and he does not consider our brokenness too big an obstacle to overcome. Old Testament, New Testament, and this is, we're going to talk about this next part. God always does his part. Right from, he created everything, and then he gave commandments. Right, I think of God's commandments like bumpers when you're going bowling, so you don't end up in the gutter. Right? His commands are not burdensome. They're supposed to help us live the life that he had for us. And then he gives his covenants, and he's good to his covenant word. He's loving, he's kind. He punishes sin, turns us over to our choices, but he forgives wickedness and sin and rebellion. Our sin is not bigger than God's love for us. God, when we turn away from God, when we run away from God, he is right there waiting. He's not off doing something else. He doesn't, he, he doesn't forgive us because he has to. He forgives us because that's who he is. His forgiveness, his love, his grace his unbreakable grace is bigger than that sin. It was bigger than my sin, your sin, the sin of the Israelite people. And he always comes through. He always does his part. Right? So we have to, we have to be real about what sin is on the one hand. We have to also acknowledge that God is bigger than that sin. And when we come to him, when we cry out to him like the Israelite people did, he's right there scoop us up, dust us off, remind us that he loves us, and invite us into what he is trying to do with everybody else around him. God always does his part. And then lastly, God's work in the specific people of the story. Right, Three people kind of jump out. We look at Deborah. And when I think about Deborah, she might be somebody would, we would refer to as like, wow, is there anything that she can't do? She's a judge, she's a prophetess, she's a leader. People look to her for guidance. She's high capacity, high ability, right? Some people have lots of capacity and they're good at one or two things. Some people are good at a lot of things, but they're only, you know, they got like 15 minutes in them and then they're shot. This Deborah, high capacity, high ability. She's an all-star. And then when there was more, right, when... When Barack says, I'll only go if you come with me, she's like, all right, let's go. No hesitation. She jumps in, 
and she does it. Then um, there's Barack. Now, some people look at him, and they think that he's a coward because he wouldn't go on his own. Some people, on the far end of the other extreme, look at him, and they think, well, that's just wisdom, right? Deborah is the voice of God. Why would you not want the voice of God to be with you in the face of of an overwhelming enemy? But regardless of, of kind of where you come down on that, something crazy, something difficult was put in front of Barack. And he, he hesitated, but he did it anyway. He did it anyway. <clears throat> and then there's JL. So I think, so she's the woman who welcomed the commander of the opposing army into her tent, took care of him, and then finished him off. I, I think a fair comparison would be to say that JL was a housewife, right? She, her job was to work at home. And in that time period, part of that meant setting up and taking down the tents. So she was good with a hammer and a tent peg. That was her every day. That was what was always in front of her, what she knew. God put an opportunity in front of JL, put an opportunity in front of her, and she didn't, at least we don't read in the text, she didn't hesitate. There's no, well, I'm no Deborah. I'm no Barack. She did what she knew how to do. Right in the midst, God presented her with an opportunity. She didn't have to wait for more resources. She didn't have to wait for more learning. She didn't have to wait for more confidence. She did what she knew how to do. Right, and before, before, we, before we leave jail, remember um, last time we were together talking about Joshua, just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean we should do it. Right? So don't go fixing your relational problems with a hammer and a ten peg. Just <laughs> getting that out there. Okay. All right, so to kind of tie this all up, right? God will always do his part, and he invites us to do ours. So the questions with which I would leave you, and I, and I think in, in little ways that each one of these applies to each one of us. <clears throat> Maybe you're hit, sitting here this morning and you are more like the people of Israel and you've gone your own way and you're doing your own thing and you need to cry out to God. I think I could, probably should be doing that every day. Cry out to God for his help, for his direction. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like Deborah. You're like doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're good at it. But God's, there's like this extra thing that God wants you to do. Maybe you're like Barack. And there's something in front of you that's scary, difficult. Maybe it doesn't make sense. But God wants you to do it anyway. He wants you to do it anyway. Maybe you're like JL. Maybe there's an opportunity sitting right in front of you. And you don't need anything else. You have everything that you need at your disposal. Everything you need to know, the skills, the ability, the resources is all right there. You just need to act. 
So a lot to think about in the story of Deborah the judge. I want us to leave here today with the idea, I want us to leave excited about the idea that God always does his part. We can always count on him. He does not fail. Jesus' death and resurrection is our ultimate proof of that. God does not fail. That he's waiting for us to turn to him and to call out to him. And he is inviting us into his work, the work of loving others, the work of growing his kingdom, the work of bearing his image so that other people can come to him and experience his forgiveness and his love and his grace and his mercy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples in scripture of, um, of those who struggle, of those who, um, who succeed. God, we thank you for the way that you bring all of those pieces together. God, what a, what a blessing that you would invite us into your work. You don't, need a, you don't need us, but that you would ask us to join you in what you're doing. So God, wherever we find ourselves this morning, like the people of Israel, like Deborah, like Barak, like Jael, God, would you give us the courage to take that next step, the confidence in you to know that you're gonna do your part so that we might join you in yours in that work. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. Amen.